Hi, it's a new year, and I am so honored to be back with you here at the global headquarters of the world's best capitalized bank, headquartered in the world's best capitalized country. And we had a strong finish to last year for both bonds and equities, but markets are a little choppier in January. So what is next? Is the Fed put back? What's going on with rates? And what about geopolitics? How should you navigate your portfolio with so much going on? Well, today, I am once again joined by a cavalcade of stars. We have Paul Donovan, our CIO Chief Economist, Mark Anderson, co-head of Global Asset Allocation, and Nadia Lovell, Senior Equity Strategist. And we're going to talk about these things, and we are so pleased to welcome uh, public participation in this video uh, and live stream from uh, LinkedIn. And then in the second part, we're going to go uh, to the private version to get into some of the more investment details. So to start us off, Paul, take us through the macro outlook, start with inflation and where the economies are going in 2024. Thank you, Mark. Um, so yeah, what we're seeing in the US in particular is two interesting trends in inflation. Firstly, as you said, when you look at certain states, there's a bit of an inflation problem. I mean, there's a Florida has got an inflation problem because there's been all sorts of issues with rising insurance premiums, people moving into Florida. But large parts of the United States have got inflation at or below 2%. Now, that's important because that is signaling that we don't have um, price stickiness. And I think one of the great changes that took place towards the end of last year is that finally, finally, central bankers seem to admit that actually inflation is not going to somehow peculiarly stop at three and a half percent and not go down. There was, a, I think, a recognition that actually, yes, inflation can come down as long as central bankers get their policies right. So we've, we've removed the risk of price stickiness, I think, from the calculation. Um, the other thing that we get when we look in at the detail of the inflation, which has been very, very important to the growth story, is that middle income consumers, again, particularly in the States, have been experiencing lower inflation than the headline numbers, which means they've got more spending power than the headline inflation numbers would suggest. And that means that they've been more resilient. So if you look at 2023, every single month, U.S. retail sales was better than expected in some way. Um, and that's reflecting the fact that the middle-income household has had a lower inflation number. Now, they may not feel it. They may be complaining about high prices all the time. But the reality is they've had a bit more spending power than the headline numbers would suggest. So that combination, the uh, regional data, which is really showing we just don't have inflation stickiness, which has really started to change perceptions of policymakers, and the fact that the middle-income consumer has actually been doing a bit better, had a bit more spending firepower, those are really important signals coming out of the inflation data today. Okay. Do you want to uh, do a read across on the economy from the inflation data? So what, what we're taking away from this is that the fact that Again, middle-income consumers have a bit more spending power. Uh, that's led to this resilience of the consumer sector. The fact that they're actually fairly secure in their jobs. I mean, people are feeling that they're not likely to be, be fired uh, anytime soon. Uh, I'm 
looking at you, Mark, to confirm that that's the case with me. Um, so you know, we've got this stability in terms of income expectations. And what that is doing is helping to create the soft landing scenario. Now, don't get me wrong. Soft landing scenarios don't often happen. And of course, every hard landing does start as a soft landing. But I look at the consumer balance sheet. I look at the uh, the fact that spending power is that little bit better. And we are, I think, going to experience growth, which is probably below trend this year in developed economies. I don't think we should get too optimistic. We've had an awful lot of policy tightening after all, but it is still only a little bit below trend. Your unemployment ticks up, but only a little bit. This is going to be, I think, a relatively benign uh, macroeconomic scenario for most of the developed economies this year. Okay. Well, thank thank you for that. Now, I want to pick up on uh, something that was a little bit dichotomous in what you said. On the one hand, you know, people uh, have have money, have some security, and yet they're complaining about it and they don't feel so well. And I use that uh, as an intro to politics and obviously what people are thinking and how should we be thinking about the influence of politics on the macro picture and, may, and maybe on the investment side a little bit? Well, of course, you know, the, the, the way people feel is not necessarily exactly the same as the way uh, that they behave. I mean, we can see this in, in consumer confidence data, for one thing. Um, one of the problems on the inflation side, just to cover that, is that the prices that are falling at the moment in the United States, absolutely outright negative inflation, are durable goods. So that's you, your televisions, your washing machines, furniture. And of course, you don't buy those very often. The food that you're buying on a daily basis, that Snickers bar you're going out and purchasing on the vending machine every day, that's gone up in price. And you remember that it's gone up in price. And the price hasn't gone back to where you think it it should be, and that makes you feel angry. You know, prices are rising and it's outrageous. You're forgetting the fact that the television was cheaper that you bought last year. You're remembering the fact that that Snickers bar is an extra 30 cents. And so that's part of the, the issue. And that does have a bearing, of course, on, on politics. We know that, for example, presidential approval ratings are, are fairly closely correlated to how people believe they're faring in terms of their overall economic welfare. And we do have political risk this year as far as markets are concerned. Now, you know, uh, I don't want to uh, steal Mark's thunder on this, but generally speaking, markets are not great at pricing political risk. Um, it's, a, it's a very subtle thing. It's very complex. And it's, it's not something markets generally uh, get right a lot of the time. And of course, political polarization has made this worse because let's take a hypothetical. How do you price? a 50% chance of President Biden and a 50% chance of President Trump. I mean, it's very, very different. They're very, very different individuals. We don't know the details of their policy platform. We don't know what's going on with congressional elections uh, in November. You know, there's all sorts of complexities there, which mean that markets really struggle to price in this, this sort of political risk. The economics is influential. And of course, the decisions made by these policymakers have significant economic implications over the medium term. But as investors, trying to price this, certainly at this stage, is very, very difficult to do. And so I think we have to focus back in on the economic fundamentals and let the politicians do their own thing for a while. Well, thank you for that. You didn't go quite as far as saying that uh, the world should be run by economists instead of politicians, but we'll leave that one for next time. Uh, 
this is where we conclude the public proportion of our show. And I'm not going to wish people or say, have a great day. I'm just going to say, have whatever kind of a day you need to have. So thank you. All right, next, we are going to drill down another layer and talk about navigating portfolios in this uh, lower inflation environment, what that means for investments. So Mark, start us off. Well, thanks so much, Mark. I think one of the things that we probably learned from from last year that I wanted to pick up here on this uh, live stream is that it's always very tempting when we're in this sort of high interest rate environment just to say, you know, the world is uncertain. And it certainly was when we started 2023. We had what appeared to be a global economy that was potentially headed into a recession. We had inflation that was sort of off the rails and central banks that couldn't really seem to be hiking enough basically to slow down both the economy and, and overall inflation. But it actually turned out that putting money to work really paid off in 2023. And I think it's one of the key um, uh, things we want to leave investors with here as well is that staying invested, staying sort of the, the track is really very helpful. And as we look into sort of the next year in terms of both inflation and interest rates on the following page, we had Paul already very, very nicely laying this up. But I think when we look at the illustrations here on the left-hand side, just seeing how much headline inflation really came down. It is quite extraordinary to see that we're really on track to come back to what appears to be somewhat of a normal. So if we annualize US core, uh, PCE, core CPI, we're not far off sort of a 2 to 3% range. And that's really the reason why central bankers are getting more comfortable in the way that they talk about inflation and also them not pushing too hard back on the expectations for, for markets, which is for sort of five, six uh, cuts out of the Fed of 25 basis points in 2024. What that means for investors, of course, for those that were sticking too much into cash last year is, of course, that, that the rate of return you're going to earn is likely to come quite significantly down as those cash rates are, are falling. But I think more importantly as well is that we can feel if we're not maybe 100% confident on the geopolitical side to some of the points that Paul were making, we can probably get a little bit more comfortable on the economy. And after all, it is typically what is, is driving the markets. So when we're laying out the scenarios for, for, for this year, uh, we basically have a soft landing with a 60% probability, which is sort of a world where equity markets should be doing reasonably well. We have mid-single-digit returns across most of the markets, a little bit higher for emerging markets with a bit of a focus around quality, uh, small cap, and other interesting sectors that uh, Nadia is going to take us to uh, afterwards. It's also a world where falling interest rates is likely to mean a good year for fixed income investors. That's both in our base case where we see sort of high um, single digit returns for sort of the higher quality segment of fixed income markets and with a slight weakening of the, the US dollar as, as well. Across both the upside and the downside scenario, we actually see bond markets doing relatively well. So that's why that's sort of a preferred uh, asset class of, of, of ours. I think just because uh, Paul was, was laying it up a little bit when it came to geopolitics, I think it is worth highlighting that even if economic risk have uh, apparently at least come down a little bit into 2024, the geopolitical risk are a bit on the rise. So some of the um, investment opportunities we see also relate to commodities where we have both a projection for oil prices to move higher as well as gold, which is something that we can complement the portfolios with. Yeah, and maybe just on that topic, I think where, where we have done some work is what is the impact of geopolitics, uh, you know, for example, changes in shipping in, uh, 
inflation and I, and and uh, one of the stats we pulled out is that you know the 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 overall transport costs are maybe five percent of the cost of a pair of sneakers. So these different we don't we don't think in in many consumer goods the costs of uh, shipping are going to dramatically change the in, inflation picture here. Um, but you know keep keeping going, Mark. Uh, we. You know, we used to have uh, Tina. There is no alternative. Last year it was a little more. Uh, there is an alternative, and then there was kind of cash is king for some people. Is cash king in 2024? I don't think so, Mark. And I think that's that's part of what I was reflecting on just in the beginning of of the answer before. And on the following page, I'm just trying to highlight what are some of the uh, alternatives. So since we do think that there is an alternative to uh, to equities, on on the following slide, would you show it for for fixed income? So if we get excited about that asset class, where is it we would like to uh, to zoom in on? So first and foremost, we we keep high quality selection both across bonds and and equity markets. Uh, when it comes to, uh, in this case, the dollar bonds that I'm highlighting here, we do think that U.S. dollar investment grade is a very attractive part of the, the market to be in. Uh, so basically within the investment grade rating. When you look at this slide, it's, of course, very tempting to tilt towards sort of 8-ish uh, percent yields on something like high yield or emerging market debt. We do think that default rates are a bit on the rise in some of these lower quality segments. So therefore, uh, with high yield spreads at the moment of around 3.5%, a bit below historical averages, we don't think we're getting compensated for that additional risk if we're seeing growth coming in a bit below a uh, trend. So therefore, we're sticking a bit to high quality. What about uh, maturity or sort of uh, duration of, of bonds? We tend to really like that area around sort of a five-year bond segment. Once we get a bit further out the curve, 10-year plus, we do get a bit worried that the term premium is not exactly where it, where it should be. So, so therefore, stick around sort of that belly of the curve is, is what we'd uh, recommend to, to investors. All right. Well, uh, we're going to switch to Nadia. I, we're starting to get some questions coming in. You know, that's one of our favorite parts of the show. So uh, please keep them coming. Uh, Nadia, let's talk about U.S. equities, all-time highs. What does that typically mean for markets and what does it mean for us today? Yeah, you know, uh, Mark, it took a little over two years for the S&P to reach a new all-time high, and it did so on Friday and then again yesterday. And some of this has been driven by new AI enthusiasm that really helped to push it over that line that it's been flirting with for a few weeks now. Uh, but we do think that stocks can continue to climb higher from here. Of course, it won't be a straight line and it will not be without a few bumps along the way. But we continue to think that the general trajectory will be up for this year. Uh, as you noted, um, as Paul noted earlier, the macro backdrop overall remains favorable. Um, you know, we do expect a slowdown in economic growth after several quarters of above trend growth, but we don't expect a recession. And that's important. You know, at the same time, You've heard inflation is cooling. That's allowing the Fed to be in a better position to cut rates later this year. Now, what history would tell us is that suggests that combination of you know non-recessionary Fed easing uh, should be a tailwind to equities. You know, in fact, as you can see there in the chart on the left, the U.S. stock markets tend to do well in the months after the first rate cut when there's no recession. That blue line there on the chart. So over the last half century or so, the S&P 500 tends to rise on average 16% in the 12 months following the first cut. 
but Mark, while the path of monetary policy is, of course, indeed important, uh, particularly just given the direct impact that it has on the cost of capital and what that means for equity valuation, the other side of the equation, uh, that is earnings, is also providing that solid supportive foundation. You know, in fact, we believe that earnings recession is now behind us. You see that in the chart on the right, the third quarter really marking that inflection point. And we expect earnings to really continue to rebound this year into positive growth. We are looking for about 8% EPS growth for the full year 2024. Uh, our base case um, calls for modest upside from here to our year-end price target for the S&P 500 of 5,000 with the potential for more if that Goldilocks scenario um, that was laid out where the economy continues to grow above trend and inflation normalizes quicker. Uh, so in a nutshell, Mark, I mean, we believe that stocks can continue to keep rising if the economy uh, remains intact. All right. So positive outlook for stocks. Where in the if you're going to look in stocks, what's the most exciting parts right now? We continue to believe that there are a lot of good opportunities um, in this environment, uh, but we think that quality is at the core of the portfolios, as you heard earlier, whether that's in fixed income uh, or in equities. Now, quality have many definitions, Mark, but it is not a term, as you know, that we use lightly here. Uh, we pr primarily focus on strong balance sheet, profitability, return on invested capital, What's important and really nice about this, though, is that quality is a uh, sector agnostic. You can find quality companies across nearly every sector, though admittedly, uh, you do see a concentration in the tech sector. You know, as you know, um, tech is one of our preferred sectors. Uh, we, we often get the question, can you continue to see tech outperforming after we've seen it up over 50% last year? But, you know, what I like to do, if you change on to the next slide, is really zoom out and pull the chart back just a little bit. You know, and if you look at that, tech is only up 11% over the last two calendar years. So 2023 was really a recovery year for tech, you know, and more importantly, fundamentals in this sector continues to improve and the likelihood is there for additional earnings upgrades. AI, of course, is part of the story. It's an important part of a longer term but it is not the whole story. You know, some of the more traditional parts of tech, and today that accounts for a good portion, the majority of the sector's revenue are stabilizing and they're inflecting higher. So it isn't a sector that is just merely rising of hopes and promises. You know, for instance, just to put some examples around it, semiconductors. We know that this is a highly cyclical industry, but it is at the start of a new growth cycle and that's really being driven by a recovery demand in areas like smartphone, PCs, servers, cloud computing, which has gone through some rationalization after we had that pandemic binge. That's stabilizing and starting to reacceleration in momentum. So all of this, we believe, will really help the tech sector to see outsized earnings growth this year, upwards of high teens. Longer term, you know, we continue to be positive on the key disruptive trends in the sector, like AIs. You know, in fact, Mark, as you know, we recently upped our forecast for global AI industry revenues to get to over $400 billion by the end of 2027. That's an over 70% annualized growth rate over five years. You know, the demand for AI computing, that's 
exceeded expectations for Mark, as we know. Investing is dynamic. And while we are focused on quality, you know, if we change on to the next slide, and that being core, um, you know, we would complement that uh, with tactical exposure to small caps. Yeah, as we know, smaller companies, they tend to be more levered. They have relatively higher exposure to floating rate debt. And this was a headwind in 2023, you know, as central banks were raising interest rate. But we're going to see a reverse course in 2024, where banks or uh, central banks are cutting rates, and that should alleviate some of the pressure. Also, you know, U.S. economy broadly has been doing well and been in growth mode, but manufacturing PMIs have been in contraction territory for over a year, but that bottoming process largely is behind us now, and we think that we'll start to see some inflection higher in coming months. And so that potential pickup in activity, that should be a positive for smaller companies. And when you look at valuation, I mean, the U.S., Small cap is trading at one and a half times below the longer term discount for larger companies on a price to book ratio basis. Burmark, the opportunities are limited to the U.S. I know I sit in the U.S., but there are opportunities about globally. We also see opportunities in um, the European small and mid cap companies for similar reasons. And finally, we maintain our preference for emerging market stocks. We do expect uh, EM companies to post solid mid-teens earnings growth uh, this year that's better than global pairs. So to put a pin in it, Mark, and you heard Mark Anderson, actually this is ready, uh, it's really about fine-tuning the portfolios to really get back into balance, putting the cash to work that might just be sitting on the sidelines. All right. Thanks, Nadia, for that uh, tour around the world with equities and deep dive on, on sectors and tech. Uh, now come to my favorite part, uh, the questions, and I am so pleased that people have started off 2024 with some great questions. So I like I like the first question we got in here. Do you see any risk that a potentially weakening U.S. dollar will create an inflationary comeback as the United States is heavily dependent on imports? Paul, do you want to take a stab at that? So where we need to start is the fact that Whilst you know, something may say made in China or made in Germany, that doesn't mean that the manufacturer in China or Germany gets most of the price that the US consumer pays. Varies from product to product, but typically less than half the price a consumer pays goes to the import price. It's what happens after stuff arrives in the United States that actually is important. That's the wholesale, retail, advertising, you know, trucking it across from state to state, local state taxes, all of that sort of stuff makes a difference. Now, that doesn't mean that import prices are irrelevant, but it's not a one-to-one -one relationship. The other thing that we have to bear in mind is that the US is an important market, and US consumers have become increasingly resistant to price increases. The Fed was commenting uh, in its uh, base book, the, the gossip magazine that economists read on a monthly basis, saying that you know consumers are really resisting price increases. So if you're an exporter to the United States, are you really going to raise prices, risk upsetting US consumers just because some teenage foreign exchange dealer has pressed the wrong button on their computer? You're not going to do it. So you get this pricing to market strategy, which limits the impact. If you got an enormous move in the dollar down, then yes, that would be passed on. But the sort of fluctuations that we're seeing and we expect to continue over the course of this year, honestly, doesn't make much of a difference to U.S. inflation. 
All right. Thank you, Paul. And, you know, a lot of these questions, I think, Paul, is there are a lot of things that Paul could answer, but I want to flip one uh, that somebody else can answer. I'm going to flip it to Mark because it asks about, uh, is the average investor too optimistic about central bank puts being put in place again? Uh, I, you know, average, uh, we, we have to be very careful when we use that word. Mark, you were just out in Asia and, uh, you know, and you have, and you, you're talking to investors around the world. So how would you uh, average that one out? I think it's true, Mark, that at least the investors that I have been speaking to have a bit of a sense that we have a Fed put option back again. And I think it's also part of the reason that we're hitting these all-time highs that Nadia was was talking about and also reminding us that it's it's actually been a couple of years since we've 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 sort of been there. But I, I do think that there is a put option in, in place. And I do think when we think about the scenarios that also the downside that we have been working with is certainly not as bad as we would have considered about a year ago. So in that sense, frankly speaking, Mark, I don't feel that investors are too optimistic about it. If anything, I would say when we think about scenarios, we all talk about, and Paul can 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 go into more depth about this than, than I can, obviously, but I think it's very interesting that we still are in a world where we can, in a very optimistic case, get back to average inflation levels, but very likely we settle higher. I think that's sort of the conventional wisdom and maybe related to the Fed, we can cut a bit, but maybe not too much. I do think that there is a scenario where if current inflation trends, they persist, I mean, it would not be as wildly surprising, maybe as many would, would think if we get to average levels, but maybe even a bit below. And I think that provides sort of an upside case also for equities where central banks might need to cut uh, quicker than, 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 than what we're even thinking, right? We shouldn't forget that that when central banks were hiking, they went first from 25, then to 50 to 75. If we're surprised on the downside, why wouldn't they, they They speed it up towards getting back to normal? And I don't know if I'm sounding too optimistic here, Paul, but I, I, I do think that there is a case that we could we could undershoot as, uh, as well now. All right. And then, uh, Nadia, there's a question about early trends in U.S. earnings season. I think for S&P, we're about 80% through. But uh, yeah. what, what do you think? Yeah, you know. Uh, thanks for that question, Mark. Yes, yeah, so we, we're actually still in the early innings of, of the season. I mean, less than 15% of the S&P 500 are reported so far. You know, the first week tends to focus more on banks. But the point is the vast majority, that 80% that you alluded to, are beaten on average about uh, 5%. So that's coming in on the higher side of our initial expectations for 45% EPS growth for the fourth quarter. But again, it's still early. Uh, but so far, you know, forward guidance have been rough in line with the consensus estimates and we're not seeing much movement on the Q1 and full year estimates for 2024. The tone coming continues to be that the consumer remains resilient. The U.S. is a consumer-driven economy and there are signs that the manufacturing segment of the economy might be bottoming that improvement that we're now seeing in freight demand. Of course, the heavyweights in tag uh, won't start reporting until next week, but We've gotten some early read-through from a major uh, chip um, uh, maker in Asia that suggests that that slump in electronics looks to be finally over and expect that we're going to see really strong demand from uh, chips, particularly in AI. So, so Mark, still early, but, but so far, it's so good. All right. Thank you. And I think we have time for one more question, and uh, it gets to into epistemology a little bit, so I'm very excited 
Why is the perception of inflation so detached from reality in the United States, Paul? Oh, well, Mark, here we come to the great tragedy of human civilization. We don't have enough economists in the world um, because economists think about prices rationally and consumers don't. As consumers, we think about the price of the things that we buy frequently, not the things that we buy once a year, once every couple of years. And at the moment, the things we buy frequently are tending to go up in price, and the things that we buy infrequently are tending to go down in price. So the, the example I always use, Snickers bars are going up in price, but you know, we buy those every day, potentially, main source of food for every economist, and that then leads to uh, an expectation that inflation is constantly going up, because every single day you're reminded about the price increase. Meanwhile, the television that we bought has gone down in price, but you buy that every three years. Can you remember what you paid three years ago for the last television you bought? Well, no, of course you can't. But in the consumer price inflation calculation, a television is about as important as a Snickers bar. In fact, it's more important. We also tend to remember bad news more than good news. This is the loss aversion that, uh, that Mark Anderson gets very excited about in portfolio analysis. And that is programming us to remember the price increases, not the price declines. And then the final thing, which I think is a real issue at the moment, and it's why the, the, the inflation is resented so much more today than perhaps was the case even back in the, the great inflation of the 70s, is that price level, so not the change, but the level is above where it used to be. So you remember the Snickers bar used to cost you I don't know, $1.25, and now it's costing you $1.60, and you don't feel happy unless the price is back at $1.25. But inflation is about the change in price. So if it now stays at $1.60 for the next you know, five years, at least for the next couple of years, you're still going to resent that price because you've got stuck in your mind that's not the fair price. The fair price is $1.25. So all of those factors combine to give us a somewhat irrational view of inflation, but unfortunately, you know, consumers don't always behave in a rational way. So much, so much in there about uh, perception, human memory, and uh, rationality and irrationality. Uh, I'm not sure the world needs more economists going around the world counting refrigerators and prices, but uh, uh, there's some wisdom in there somewhere. But we're, we're way over time. Thank you all, and I uh, look forward to next time. Bye-bye. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 